I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanantan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And that's it. What do you mean that's it? I mean, that's it. The first half of this podcast is going to be you oh, and me. Oh, no. <laughs> the horror. No rushing to read out the guest's bio, no polite hellos, no questions, just us. Unless you want me to is read that, your bio. I can be Whitney impolite? Terrell. Is that what that means? To you? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote this whole fake bio for you. It'd be so fun. Oh, all right, let's hear it. What do you got? It's probably <laughs> impolite. Father of two, co-hosts a podcast that he generally records from his childhood bedroom. Yeah, see, that's impolite. <laughs> so we're not even going to be using a script like usual? Oh, in my dreams. No, I thought you were writing the script this week. I did it last week! We both did it last week as usual. And this week, I wrote a script for the second half of the show when we'll be joined by Johnny Diamond, the editor of Literary Hub, our parent publication. Johnny is celebrating his five-year anniversary in that position, and he's going to talk to us about LitHub Radio, the rise of podcast networks, and podcasting in general. That sounds, well, I mean, that sounds terrific. So, wait, I'm, was I supposed to write something? Ugh, you were supposed to write about our <laughs> podcast, how it gets made. You're such a troll, how the literary <laughs> podcast gets made. What our listeners would need to know if they want to do a podcast, all the behind-the-scenes dirt. This is and actually, we actually do have conversations like this, even though <laughs> we're kind of having a pretend conversation like this. All right, yes, I did moderate a panel. Say that again? You did that panel in Portland. You yes. were going to talk about that. Yes, I did a panel in Portland at the AWP conference. You were not invited. You came anyway. It was a how-to session on literary podcasting. We had amazing panelists. Taz Ahmed from the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. Zahir Jen Mohammed from the Racist Sandwich podcast. David 
Naaman from the Between the Covers podcast and Connor Stratton from the Close Talking podcast. So while Witt and I talk about our experiences putting together the fiction nonfiction podcast, which is now a year and a half old, we'll be cutting in sound from that panel, which isn't perfect. The sound, I mean. Which is one of the things we'll be talking about. Yep. Sound quality, mics, sound shields, me carrying my Yeti microphone around in my backpack. But first... Oh, oh, you did get a script done. Good job. Oh, yeah. Hot off the printer, my script. It says here that first we're going to talk about how and why we decided to do a podcast. Do we even know the answer to that? You couldn't have punched this up a little and called it our origin myth. You're such a Marvel fan. Oh, no, we're not going to go back to the DC Marvel (laughs) argument, which has historically been a problem in this podcast. Um, Yeah, I mean, look, we the origin story of this podcast is is uh, that you and I uh, met at um, James McPherson's uh, memorial service. I had been wanting to do this podcast that was a, that was about news and literature that I thought I felt like the writers that I knew who were uh, talking about the news and and particularly the news you know since Trump had been elected um, were really smart and also that so many things that had already been written about in literature were applying to the news now. And that and that wasn't making its way into the news flow. It's like we learned all these things in literature. Literature is vast store repository of knowledge, and then like we just like forget it and don't apply it to what's happening to us now. But the writers that I knew uh, were doing that, and, and that was sort of where the idea for this podcast came. And you had been a journalist, and and when we talked, it seemed to me like you'd be a great person to talk to about these things. Yeah, we had a good um, conversation. I remember after the memorial, we went to dinner with some other writers and we were remembering Jim and also, of course, talking about the news, because how could we how could we not? That was um, actually we, we met before the election and we talked about the idea after the election. Um, and it seemed like the timing for it was just perfect because I was sort of dying to have that kind of conversation. Yeah, it's not right. So we actually so Jim's. Uh Memorial Service was before Trump got elected. I guess. Yeah, because it was in the summer. Okay, I guess I maybe I'd been thinking about this before. I, I associate. I mean, I guess maybe it was Trump's election that made me feel like I had to actually do it instead of just sit around and think about it. But I mean, and it's true that I had been listening to news podcasts for years before that. I don't know. I really don't know how many podcasts you listened to. Bef- you know, before I'd be curious to know. Like I listened to. I had been listening to. You know, like Slate's. Political Gab Fest, which is one of the really sort of original podcasts, sort of an OG podcast uh, on news. And I listened to 538 and, and other sort of news podcasts like that. Were you listening to podcasts when we first when I first started talking to you about this? I would listen to one-offs, but I didn't have loyalty, I think, to any one show, maybe ex- with the exception of possibly of Taz's, um, because Taz and I were old friends from having written for a, a, the same blog years ago. Uh, so she was one of the first friends I had who had her own podcast, and she was so enthusiastic about it. And if, I don't know, I did have a lot of loyalty to radio in general, and I was interested in this as an iteration of radio. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think my... Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. We'll talk about it. Interrupting we'll talk about is a thing later. we have a problem with. Okay, go. Uh, no, I'm done. <laughs> we'll also talk about that, the need to finish one's thoughts. Yeah. Well, I have this thing. I mean, I, I can remember as a kid, you know, radio was incredibly important to me as a sort of companion. And I I listened to Royals games when I was a kid, unable to fall asleep at night all the time. And that was my sort of first... And I think there's never been a time in my life when I wasn't listening. 
I listen to things far more than I watch them. Like I've listened to many, many, many more hours of radio than I have ever watched of television. Yeah. And I think for me, that's particularly true for the news. I grew up in the DC area. So I would listen to WTOP 1500 AM where you get the top news instantly and they would loop the news, um, like the weather on the eights. And I mean, I just, they were very organized about it. And so there was something very reliable and comforting about that set of voices and also the, the way in which they condensed information. It was extremely useful. I've never had much patience for television news. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like, I mean, I remember painting houses, which was one of my first jobs, while listening to NPR all day long, you know? I mean, that was kind of, it was, it was something you could do while doing something else, which is certainly what I do with podcasts. I assume most of our listeners do that. Anyway, the, the other thing, nice thing about the podcast is that it allowed me to get into the radio business without having to own a radio station, you know? I mean, uh, one of the things that I think is so cool about podcasting and the reason we're doing this episode is sort of talk to our listeners who might be interested in podcasting or curious how an episode of a podcast gets made to say it's really not that hard. Um, And that was sort of the point of that uh, AWP panel, of course, also, which is like the how-tos of literary podcasting and how how we started this and sort of let you see sort of behind the scenes, you know, how this podcast works. Speaking of which, I got something I want to play for you. Faction from Literary Hub. I'm Whitney Terrell, and joining me is Sugi Ganeshanathan. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds, it sounds like, I don't know, like Faction. It sounds sort of like 3T1 Contact. It's like the podcast that comes on right after that or something. I don't know. Like it just sounds very. Um, it's like a bad 80s news show, I think, maybe. Like I would have like a, a detective huge, show. I don't know. Anyway, that, that was our first test episode. The other thing about listening to that episode, we're not going to make you listen to the, anything other than that very beginning part, which was that we figured out that we needed a script because it was not good. Um, it didn't move properly. It didn't feel right. We got lost, you know. Um, I think everyone sort of does this differently, but we've had several listeners write in about asking how we prep for an episode. And generally, people seem to be surprised that we write these things out. Yeah. uh, And we write them out, even though we sometimes diverge from them. I think that one of the things it does is that it helps us to see how the other person is thinking about the topic, because often we think about topics quite differently. And then we have to sort of commit to some ideas and put them on the page and see what the arc of a conversation might be. So when we first started, another thing that we did was that we did one episode at a time. And uh, so we wouldn't we wouldn't start booking the guests for the next episode until we'd finished the previous one. And then eventually I realized that I was having massive anxiety about the idea that we wouldn't be able to get guests in time. And then we started uh, you you got interns for the show. And then we started. I just found them on the street. Now, look, it's an intern. (laughs) You located them. with uh, UMKC offering support for that, which is great. We've had some wonderful students of yours helping out on the show. And then we we sort of sit down with them at the beginning of a term and and plan out what our, we think our episodes are going to be. There's two weeks between episodes. So we have this sort of thing where we have to like write the booking letters, 
you know, emails to whoever we want to be on the show based on whatever we think the news topic is that we want to, what we want to talk about. And then, you know, like that's, that takes time, like, uh, because people say no, or they don't respond. And we started putting like, you know, you must respond to us by 8 a.m. on this day. So you, you know, because if we don't do that, then we get stuck without somebody to actually be on the show. Um, and then once we have somebody, because we can't start writing the script until we got people booked, then we get people booked, then we write the script generally like a day or two before the interview is going to be, then we do the interview, then we do the sound edit, and then you do the notes and quotes, right? You want to and, talk about and that I part? should say, we do not do the sound edit, you do the sound edit. Okay, which I is, do the sound edit. <laughs> which is the sound edit, and I do the, the notes and quotes, which are which is basically the show page on LitHouse, and we have had also some wonderful transcriptionists. Uh, we recently have been taking a stab at using artificial intelligence for part of the transcription. And I yeah, we should then, just use the artificial intelligence as a guest and skip the, just <laughs> let them generate something. We don't need guests. <laughs> They're, it's pretty efficient. They'd probably come up with something. But that brings us to a, a good question. You know, what makes for a good topic? I, I mean... I think a topic, first of all, it should be for our show. Um, it has to be, I like it to be in the news flow in some way for there to be what one of my editors at the Kansas City Star would have called a news peg to the, you know, events that we're going to talk about, but also one for which we can immediately imagine a couple things. One is some writers who would be good to talk about that subject and also some books that like either you or I are familiar with that would be interesting to discuss in light of that subject, you know? Um, like, for instance, when we decided to do the episode on Facebook and early on, the early, so around the time of the early res revelations of how Facebook had been disseminating fake news uh, during the 2016 election, I really wanted to talk about that Isaac... Uh, I'm, I'm not... Uh, the. Uh, Library of Babel story by Borges, Borges, and I really thought I like, oh, this is how this this would match the sort of the way he thinks about that library will match the data set stuff that we're discussing has to do with Facebook. And you knew Alexis Madrigal would be a good person to talk to because he'd written a piece in the Atlantic, right? Right, and then we had. Um, Alexis and Alexander Chi on for that episode, which is called, I think, something like How Big is Too Big. Yeah. But that's a good topic, right? Because there was, there's all three of those elements sort of coalesced around there. And we knew, we knew Alex would be a good guest because he, you know, ha has a presence on social media, but also is sort of thinking about these issues too and was maybe reconsidering the way that he uses social media as a writer. And so we thought that would be good. And also, the two guests have to have something different to say. Yeah, we usually conceive of the two halves of the store, of the show differently. Um, one half might focus more on the news and the other might focus more on literature or they might focus on two different craft questions related to the news. So that's a thing that I'm always interested in, in actually, or is how does what's going on in the news require us to think about the art of writing differently? So just an example of this, um, when we had Emily Rabito on, and uh, for a recent climate change episode, we've done a couple of those. She was talking about, you know, her opinion that 
fiction is no longer really the, the right genre in which to write about climate change. I'm interested in those sorts of intersections of, of politics and, say, structure or point of view. So I'm always, always curious to ask our guests about that. So I think we have a good cut from Taz Ahmed talking about how she and her co-host Zara Norbash prepare an episode of Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. So let's hear how a couple of other podcasters do this. Okay, great. We yeah. were very prepared on our podcast. I don't know if that comes across for listeners, but we uh, work on an agenda. We The plan is to have uh, three hot topics that we talk at the top of the show, and then we have shorter segments after our break. And the shorter segments are um, Awkward Ask a Muslim, we declare fatwas, we have a group Sharia segment, we give out a good Muslim award. So those are pretty consistent. And I think what's so fun about having the short segments is that um, our listeners know that they always come at that second half of our show. It helps us, like, when we go through our month, we were like, okay, we, that's that's the story I'm going to, that's the experience I just had in my life that I'm going to uh, use. I had a great awkward Ask a Muslim yesterday, so that's going to be in my awkward Ask a Muslim <laughs> what for was this it? month. It was a loose driver that was uh, started wanting to talk about Muslim menswear, and I was like, okay, this is going to be very interesting. Was it here? And yeah, I've been spending a lot of time with Lyft drivers. Okay, yeah. Question Check. to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as for the news topic, I think Zara and I have very different perspectives when it comes to uh, what's happening in the news. I have a very political background, so I always want to get a little bit nerdier, and she comes from a comedy background, so she wants to be a little bit more. <laughs> find the funny in a lot of things. Um, so Yeah, you guys argue. Do you know that you're going to argue ahead of time? We do or not that happen? We are argue. Okay. Yeah, but we do argue I mean, disagreement is interesting. Yeah. I like that part of the and podcast. And I think that's why our podcast is people want to listen to us. I think well, one of the things that we were really fighting back against was this perception that everyone thought Muslim women all, were all one thing, that we all had one opinion. Okay. And so this way... You know, if you listen to us, you, you're like, oh, like these two women have very different perspectives on how they view a lot of things that people thought otherwise. So, yeah, we do. We definitely do have an agenda that we um, we'll also have like five different topics that we'll go through, and then we'll when we do a run through before we start recording, we talk about what we want to say about each thing. And for a bit of a contrast to uh, our method. Uh, and to and to Taz's in a way. Here's uh, so here's Jan, Jan Mohammed talking about how he and his co-host Soleil Ho prepare an episode of the Racist Sandwich podcast. We have like a few some some questions. I think like are so they written I, down? Are they? Yeah, like when I interviewed Via Time to Win, um, it was at a conference here in Portland. I think I had eight questions, but my goal is if I get to all eight questions that I know have failed, mm. meaning so like. I, that's when that's when I know I'm really being nervous is if I've gotten past five, meaning I try to only ask four questions because the idea is to have some sort of dialogue or conversation, and it's always nice when they ask you questions as well. But if I've gotten to all eight, I know like this is not really going well. So, um, but I think if you have the time, it's always better to talk to the person in advance. The time to is very busy. I didn't call him. In, I don't have his number. I didn't call him in advance. But like. With Alexander Chi, who was very, I don't know him personally, but he was very generous on email, where I had sort of had an idea about what we would talk about. His last book of essays isn't directly about food, but I said like, and I oftentimes, um, this is gonna sound funny, but I, I usually prep someone before I interview them saying, sometimes I take on a bit more of a adversarial, and a little bit more to the, 
to the right because I want to be a little bit like to press somebody and I want to also sometimes I sound a bit more naive than I, than I really am in real life yeah I feel like it's my job to ask the dumb question that, <laughs> yeah, that somebody has to ask to get the conversation started because that's kind of my life experience though yeah we're like um, we're a conduit for the reader like I mean we're going to be this coffee um, coffee connoisseur and they have these really expensive coffee and I'm like well what about the class implications of that and like even though I'm a fan of his work I'm just sort of pushing him like on this issue and, and if I tell them in advance or if I challenge someone about, about their book generally they're very receptive but as long as you give them the heads up that this is not like me as a hero saying it I'm the, the conduit for the reader I don't really have these ideas so that's I find that that helps if you get the prep time what surprised me about that was that he only has like this list of eight questions that if he gets to only, if he gets all the way through it, he's disappointed, which is weird because I always feel like we're trying to get through our script and hopefully not go over time, which is our biggest problem, you know, because then that ends up redounding to me doing these long sound edits where I've got to cut a lot of stuff to get it down to like the 60 or 70 minutes that we try to make this podcast be. I thought that what he was saying made a lot of sense to me in that, you know, I had a little bit of training in sort of principles of oral history uh, at, in one of my stints in grad school and sort of just the notion that sometimes the person you're talking to wants to take the conversation in a different way or if they offer you a really interesting answer, you follow it down a different path. And it's true also that even when we have those scripts, we do frequently cut questions towards the end or follow up in a way that we couldn't have anticipated. There was also a lot of really useful discussion about podcast tech on this panel. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you have Speaking to take the lead which, on that part. I just, we should, if you really want to go behind the curtain, we just had a big discussion about how I screwed up setting up the microphones for the first part of this thing, which means I'm going to have to re-record it because it was, I had the wrong feed set up on my computer. So that's awesome. I am not in any way a tech guru. However, you are still using an iPhone 5. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. And it took me a billion years to convince you to get like a sound screen to like, you know, reduce echo and all that stuff. And so um, I am the person who does think about I mean, it, to me, it goes back to when I had like a, a garage band in high school and we had a soundboard and we mixed and we, you know, cut albums and did stuff like that. It's very similar to to the stuff I did in high school. So wait a second. Are you going to play a clip of your high school band now? Oh my God, I have. <laughs> you should a thousand percent include a clip. Of I have a cassette. <laughs> I don't even know how I would get it <laughs> onto this show. I, well, you know, I guess I could play it and then record it. It would, it would sound terrible. It's bad. It's bad. We <laughs> were a great band, though. <sighs> Excuses. I was in the audience for that AWP panel, which we were able to record because I pack extremely light and had all of my luggage, including my microphone on me. Um, I will never forget the expression on your face when you had been trying to find me. And then I, I was like, oh, of course, I have my microphone on me at all times. <laughs> and then later on that panel, I seem to remember that everyone talked about their tech and they had some really great suggestions. It was particularly interesting to hear as I hear talk about recording in the field. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, we're going to listen to our tech, and, but we should say what we use. I mean, we use both use Yeti microphones, which I don't know why, because we read about them online and somebody said that they were good. Um, we're, I'm recording this on, on Skype using a program called Call Recorder that allows me to record a Skype call. 
we close all of the programs before we record. We have people shut off their outlook. Um, sometimes people apologize for their pets, but we're very proud of the array of pets that we featured on the show. Um, yeah, pets yeah. are not a sound defect. They're a sound <laughs> addition. That's a that's a feature, not a bug. So um, We've also yeah. had these disasters, near disasters at live shows that have been, those are the things that make me the most stressed. So like, I think the first time was at the, Miami, Miami right? And we walk into a room where we're going to do a panel and like the guests are going to be there in a minute. And, and they've been told us that we were all set to go and everything's great. And we go to the board operator and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. They were like, they were like, where is your device? And what they, what they expected us to have. And I think which had somehow gotten lost in the chain of communication was, um, the kind of recorder that you plug into a soundboard and which we didn't have. And this was one of those moments when I was really happy that you are the sort of person who goes running for two hours a day because you ran back to your hotel room, retrieved all of our, your own tech and then brought it back in time to actually record the panel. Yeah. We ended up just recording that off of a, basically off of a, uh, a laptop, um, which is not ideal. And, you, and that, 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 that episode doesn't sound that great, but um, at least we had the sound. I mean, we would have totally lost it without it. Um, so there is, there are devices, uh, ours is like a zoom. It's an H2. H2 that we use that, that we now use to, you can carry this little, little recording device and you can plug it into a, a soundboard in a live show that will, and it will then record that, uh, sound for you. We had, nobody told us anything about this. We had no idea. We had to just sort of figure it out on our own. I don't know how everyone else did it out. Well, you, you remember what we, when we needed to get this, what, what we did actually was, I DM'd Zahir and then I texted him and right. then I got on the phone with him. That's true. And then he sent me a bunch of links. Yeah. And I spent a lot of time doing, you know, I contacted um, my my band leader. Um, I mean, I'm now in a band. I contacted my band leader to ask him if he had advice on that sort of stuff. I contacted a variety of music professionals that I knew. Um, I this, basically tried to consume a We literally do not fucking know how to do this. <laughs> People we were just super ask nice questions until somebody were figures super, it super out. Nice about it. And that was actually another point that people on the panel made that podcasters are generous with information and not particularly competitive or territorially about their tech knowledge. Um, if people can help you, they often will, which is kind of a part of the culture, which is really nice. Well, here's the range of here's some tech. Here's the tech information we got from the people on the panel. You'll hear in order Zahir, Jen Mohammed, David Naiman, Taz Ahmed and then Connor Stratton. So we have, we bought a kit, it's called the Zoom H6, which I think uh, we bought it for 400, I think we get it for 350. It has four inputs for microphones. Um, the cables cost about 12, the microphones are $95. I own, I think, three microphones, headphones. So the whole investment was $600. Um, and that's amazing because you can go to a, a busy restaurant and it, the microphones are so powerful. And, Tech, and then we edit on, we have a producer who we pay, we raised $10,000 on Kickstarter, or maybe more, I can't remember, and we hired a producer. Producers are getting more expensive because more, more people want um, more money for podcasts, rightfully so, and we try to pay everyone a decent wage, so we paid a producer $4,000 for the last season. Um, she was the one who got James Beard nomination, which was amazing. It's about the erasure of African Americans from the narrative about barbecue. So that was something that, it's a narrative show, so she goes and travels with this kit and goes and talks to people. So $600, you can use a USB microphone, but um, the tech stuff is really, is really difficult, it never gets really any easier. But real quickly, one thing, coming from print journalism to audio, 
Audio people are so much friendlier than printers. <laughs> Infinitely. Like, like, we compete with a Sporkful for a number of awards, and the producer name is Anne. I can text her, email her, phone, call her anytime, and she'll help me out. I don't really know anything about tech. I, I um, do my interviews in person at the radio station, but I do audio edit my own interviews. I don't have a producer, so I use Adobe Audition, but I don't know if that's... Right it's so funny when you say that everybody's head drops and people are writing down. Like, <laughs> yeah, I have no idea if that's okay. a good thing to be doing, and I don't know if I'm that's what I audio use. editing. We started our podcast on blue mics. We bought blue mics, and because uh, you can just plug it in with your USB, and we would record them GarageBand, and we would send it to our sound engineer, and he would edit it on Audacity. And platform was something else we were concerned about. We weren't sure quite where to put it. I know a lot of people use Lucid. Uh, we were uploading it onto Squarespace because Squarespace will host audio. And so we were able to have an RSS stream go from Squarespace. Uh, and then six months into our show, we, uh, I believe it was six months, we are now on Audioboom. So Audioboom is a platform, so we, I don't even know how it works, but we load up our audio through them. Um, and Audioboom is also, they also sell ads for us. So that's uh, something else that they do. We are now recording a Zoom 5. Um, and I think I, my mic is an Audio-Technica mic. I don't know what kind it is. Uh, Zara has a shotgun mic. Um, and the shotgun mic is really helpful when we're doing field recording. So the Zoom 5 is helpful, is helpful to uh, when you're walking around and you want to do interviews with people. So that's what we use when we do like red carpet shows. Um, we don't record. The reason why it's just me and Zara on our podcast is because we never figured out how to do a third microphone. Basically, that's why we don't interview other people. Like we started out because we just had two mics and we didn't know how else to do it. Um, now, I, now we record in a studio in LA. We I'm part of a, a podcast collective called the Potluck Podcast Collective. It's an Asian American uh, collective in Los Angeles. We have a studio that is run out of. Um, visual communications, and they're the ones that do the Asian American Film Fest in Los Angeles. So in that studio, we have a soundboard, we have four mics, so it's a little bit, it's a much better setup than, than what we had. But I think our sound basically sounds the same. So I am the first sound engineer, and Jack is the second sound engineer, and uh, my mic is the MacBook Air mic. Um, I think Jack has a USB microphone and just got a Zoom H4N Pro. Um, but we use GarageBand, and that's worked out so far. Um, and then we're also in different cities. Uh, Jack's in New York, and I'm in Minneapolis. So we do Google Hangouts Live, which has been a little better huh. than our experience with Skype. Wow, I didn't know about that. Uh, so that could be, that might be your, your okay. solution. Okay. While we're on the topic of sound editing, let's talk about... Interrupting? Yes! Interrupting. <laughs> Oh my God, I interrupted. That is probably already a personal record. So, <laughs> Suki and I have all these conversations back behind the scenes about how to handle it when guests talk long. I think that's the hardest thing that we have to deal with because some people know how to shorten their answers and speak in clear, coherent points with an ending and some people don't. And it makes it really tough because listeners, I think... Listeners, call in if you want longer answers from the guests, but I think they prefer it when the guest is like quick and to the point and there's lots of interplay rather than long monologues. 
I will say that I sometimes enjoy it when a, a guest gives a longer answer and finds their way to a thought because <laughs> we've asked them a particular question. And here you get right to the crux of it, the, the, the mild philosophical differences between Whitney and myself. I think I've spent a lot of time because thinking about- Because you start questions without knowing what you're going to ask and you find it in the middle and then I have to fix it in the <laughs> sound edit. I used to. Now I now I don't. But I think that I've spent a lot of time thinking about interrupting and the different cultures of in- interrupting in conversation. You know, I've lived in the Midwest since um, for most of the last, gosh, I guess since about 2003. And on the East Coast and in some parts of the East Coast, it seems to me like interruption is actually a mode of demonstrating that you're listening like you make direct responses to what the other person is saying, you say, mm-hmm, or like you interject something, and it's actually a, an active kind of listening. And in other places and in other cultures, it's actually really disrespectful. And I'm always trying to tune myself to the person I'm talking to. And I remember it actually came up in our interview with Rihanna Yazi, who... Um, was a wonderful native playwright who runs the new native theater in Minneapolis. And she got on the phone with us after being in a community meeting for, I think, a really, really long time. And she sort of came on and talked about giving people the space to giving them as much time as they needed to express themselves. But it's true. Like if we did that and then say, you know, I'm also saying all of this without having to be the person who does the sound edit. Yes, you are. There's also some gendered behavior related to interruption. I'm just going to say. I think we have to get that in there because that's actually the thing we talk about first. Yes. Yes. I was like, I mean, I just think that the way that people, and this is something I observe, you know, all, all the time in all facets of my life, people receive interruptions from men differently. Um, in some cases, the very pitch and volume of men's voices makes it more possible to interrupt. Um, I don't want to be too flat about the way that I'm representing gender there. But I think that, you know, when you watch people on, say, television news, actually, this is one of the reasons I find television television news to be infuriating, that frequently women or non-binary persons are interrupted. And when I watch a, a woman or a non-binary person resist that and talk over someone and go long, I cheer. I cheer. And... So I think it's hard for me to not cheer for it in some ways on the show, too. Well, I just would say to complicate that uh, perspective that my wife and her sisters, not to throw them under the bus, her family are champion interrupters uh, of of any gender. Um, and that was also true of like my grandmother, uh, who I spent a lot of time with. So I've had many female interrupters in my life as more than men. I would say, at least in my immediate family. I think you might be in the minority there. So this actually plays into my theory about interruption. I grew up on the East Coast, and I think this is a theory, and I hesitate slightly to advance it. Um, But I think interruption, well, I think interruption among Tamil cultures um, can often be a mode of listening. And I think that might also be true in some Jewish communities. Um, because it seems like a mode of conversation that I often have with friends who are coming out of Jewish communities. And like, it's a kind of, I don't know, it's a kind of enthusiasm for the person who's talking. Oh, really? So, okay. But, 
That's, but all, I, that's how I'll think about it from now on. <laughs> well, I'll take it up and ask Gail. Gail's just feeling enthusiastic about what I'm saying. <laughs> She's really listening to you and engaged with you. I mean, she might totally tell me I'm full of shit, which I would, I would, <laughs> I would back off um, in that case. But I think, I mean, I think my Tamil relatives also do that. Like, they're not necessarily going to let you finish a long speech. All right. So the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast started as a partnership with LitHub, as we'll be discussing with Johnny Diamond next. But I think the people out there, if they're interested in starting a podcast, are, are going to be wondering about how they actually get people to listen. Uh, you know, what works? Is it social media? Do you have to have a partner like LitHub? Can you survive and be independent? Well, we have talked to people who have done both kinds of systems. I think we were eager to have a partner because we weren't, say, known radio personalities or anything like that. And we also knew people at LitHub and admired it and thought that it had the kind of range and reach and readers who we were interested in becoming listeners. Yeah, but at that the same seemed time, like perfect for our audience. Yeah, but I mean, just as you said, you know, you don't have to own a radio station to be a podcaster. So the kind of um, autonomy that we have also, you know, to, to, um, to, we could have done it without a, without a partner and, but I, I'm glad we didn't. I'm super (laughs) glad we didn't. I think it would have been really hard. And I am, you know, I am extremely admiring of um, people who do do this without a partner. I mean, uh, that's true of, of, of Taz and Zahir and, and, and Connor um, uh, all of whom were on the panel, and David Naiman, he his show originally airs part of it on on a on a local NPR affiliate station in Portland. But as far as the podcast part of it, that's totally independent too. Until recently, and now he's actually linked up with uh, Tin House. But here's some clips: first Taz, and then David, and then Connor talking about um, what they do to find listeners. For us, we really wanted to be a part of a larger collective, like something like Radio Topia or Gimlet or something. And so when we first started, the first year we started our podcast, we were really trying to pitch to bigger networks, um, but they all wanted to own our voice and we weren't willing to sign away life rights like that because we're all, we're memoirists and we want to write our own stuff and we don't want uh, white supremacist systems to own us, right? Like we're two women of color that want to like be owning our own stuff. So because of that, we actually had ended up turning down three different uh, deals and then, then that kind of led, led us to independent uh, podcasting. Um, we we just kind of like really pushed back on the starting the LLC. I'm curious if Racist Sandwich has an LLC. So here, uh, we started an LLC two years ago um, because we, for Audio Boom, they wanted to deposit a check to a to a business account. They wouldn't wouldn't do it for both of us. So that was so we did an LLC and then we were able to raise money. But then now we have to pay taxes. And we have to pay a lawyer. You know, like there's all these like expenses that come up when you're when you become an LLC that you don't have when you're not an LLC. Um, we we having the ads is helpful. I think the ads are kind of like we break even for the year. Um, we do fundraising drives, so we have a, a end of the year fundraising drive that we just did, which was really helpful. Um, and we do a lot of live shows, and our live shows. Um, now, from here on, uh, all of our live shows are going to, the money that we raise from the live show is going to go to 
the LLC. So you charge like admission to the live show or? Right now work? we're doing live shows at mostly college campuses so or at museums. So they'll pay you an appearance Yeah, and they'll pay like us like a, a chunk of money. Okay. Um, to chunk do of money, show. that's good. <laughs> that, better than a sliver of money or a crumb of money. What I know that Call Your Girlfriend does is they, they will actually like produce their own shows. So they'll have, they'll charge admission tickets. And they'll, their tickets are like 35 or $45. And then they, that's like how they make their revenue through that. But I don't think we're at a point where we can do that, nor do we want to produce our own show like that, because it's a lot of work. Well, <clears throat> I'm sort of solo in the sense that I do all the audio editing, the scheduling, um, the interviews, and the preparation. So it's about 30 hours per episode. And the reason why I started crowdfunding originally several years ago was because the costs were getting higher. And it felt unsustainable the number of hours I was putting in. And I lucked into a guest who mailed me, almost unprompted, Jesse Ball, who mailed me three boxes of uh, out-of-print book from a publisher that no longer exists of his books that you can't get. And so that became an incentive. And then building out a bonus archive that was also for subscribers. But that started, at some point, I was feeling like I'm not sure that I can, I'm not sure everything was working out in my life in terms of my work balance, my the amount I'm dedicating to the podcast and the amount of support I'm getting. And Tinhouse approached me um, asking about the possibility of adopting the podcast. And I was interested for a couple of reasons. One, to have help, to have an art department, to have a publicity department. Um, in all that way, but also partially from a crowdfunding perspective to have Tin House swag so that people can get uh, early reader subscriptions, mm -hmm. like get a subscription to all the galleys of the book so they can get uh, certain books that have been signed or other things that are coming from Tin House. And it really, even the smallest things seem to make a difference between whether someone will support a show they like or not. If they're getting something, it seems to tip the balance. So having something that you can offer, whether that be bonus archive from a specific guest or otherwise. But it was a negotiation with them in the sense that I wanted to not, I'm not just doing Tin House authors. They don't have any say over who I have on the show. Um, so we had to have a dance around what does it mean for you to adopt the show? Um, yeah, well, we're, yeah, we're entirely self-funded, um, and we're looking to, our next steps are to find partnerships or ways of raising money to do sort of more different kinds of content. Um, but I think it was kind of a challenge because we were just sort of two people who really liked to do this, and then we had a thing, and then we were like, we had no legitimate organization that was like, oh yeah, you're good, so you should listen to us. So we just kind of had to keep doing the best content that we had, and one, one thing that helped us a lot was um, we did um, some poets that we had done the, you know, we had done an episode about them. We sort of were active on Twitter and stuff, and they listened to our podcast, and then they were like, oh, this is a great reading of our poem, and retweeted us, and I think we were able to do that a, a number of times and that sort of helped us sort of increase our listeners you know the in terms of that that podcasting and talking about books is a is a thing that's different than writing about them it does occupy a very different brain space for me than it than than writing my fiction would 
does and if it you know, which is which is good because I wouldn't be able to do both if it were like uh, seem to be using the same muscles and it also allows a kind of conversation that I don't think would be easy to like turn into an article do you know what I mean I just think there's a kind of freedom in that discussion and in the things we discover with the guests that is is unique to podcasting and I think it like fills a space that that needed to be filled yeah, I think like, for example, sometimes we ask a guest a, a guest a question and I change my mind about something through their answer, which is really satisfying. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So what do we do? Just end? Do I, do I thank you like you're not on here all the time? You were supposed to write the script. <laughs> all right. Sugi, thank you so much for doing this show with me. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be on. <laughs> Listeners, please imagine me swapping hats from guest to co-host, because now we're excited to welcome the one and only Johnny Diamond. Johnny Diamond is a writer and editor who splits his time between New York City and the Hudson Valley. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in the Missouri Review, Geist, Hobart Pulp, Rolling Stone, Literary Hub, and elsewhere. He's currently working on a book-length object history of the axe, part investigation of its symbolism in America's westward expansion, part interrogation of contemporary tropes of masculinity and wilderness. He's the editor-in-chief of LitHub.com, and our editor. Johnny, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sugi. Hey, Wit. How are you guys doing? Hey, glad to have you here. All right, so... We're Literary Hub's oldest podcast that's still airing. The very first one was Phone Call from Paul Holdengraber, which last aired almost a year ago. Yeah. At the end of April, though, you launched a LitHub site redesign and also LitHub Radio, of which we're now a part. And some podcasts that had previously been independent joined that group. Other people with Brad Listy, So Many Damn Books... And the now just begun Maris Review with Maris Kreisman and like, I don't know, like a dozen. So it seems to me, not that I'm biased or anything, like a pretty wild success. Our show numbers are way up, like a thousand percent up, which is exciting and fun for us to be in conversation with more people. We did a literary mag episode a while back, and it seems like publications are always reconsidering their online presences to try to reach the greatest number of readers. So how did you think about that redesign and including LitHub Radio in it? Well, uh, I'll answer the first part of your two-part question first uh, in terms of the redesign. You know, the site has been around for four years. Uh, I started with it five years ago, but the site launched four years ago. And we it always surprises sp- me that that is – I feel like it's been around for so much longer than that in my mind for some reason. Maybe it's just because there always needed to be a site like that. Well, well that, that's nice of you to say, Wit. Um, I mean, sometimes it feels to me like it's been around for a decade, and sometimes it feels like it's only been a year. And those are both good and bad feelings, respectively. But, uh, you know, since we launched, we've really expanded the kind of depth and variety of stuff we cover, both within the book publishing world and in terms of culture and politics. And we've kind of evolved into something closer to a general interest magazine anchored to books. And so it was becoming uh, frustrating is too strong a word, but we were bewildered occasionally <laughs> in the way in the way that readers didn't know. We did all kinds of nonfiction stuff. Some people still thought we just covered literary fiction, which is, you know, a core part of what we do, but a small part. So with the redesign We've made it hopefully a lot easier for people to see all the stuff we do in history and biography and memoir and science and tech and food and travel and film and TV and music. Because really, the idea of the site is that you can kind of get at and discuss any topic through books. And so there's no reason why a site devoted to books should be limited to, to the literary novel, which is my, my first love. 
uh, I should say. But but so that was the idea with the redesign, um, and so far that's been successful. And LitHub Radio, aka a podcast network, just seems like a very logical extension of that. And there's a particular kind of conversation around books and culture that people love to have with their friends in bookstores, in print, and also obviously recorded for the listening pleasure of others. So there are a ton of great literary podcasts out there, and it just made sense to put some of them together to bring to a readership that would be particularly interested in hearing those conversations. So it, it, just, it just made a lot of sense. So when you started editing LitHub, Slate had several podcasts and New York Times did. And it seems like there are more and more of these podcasting networks, including LitHub Radio, Luminary, which I think is coming soon, and then the clusters attached to other mainstream publications. So in some ways, it's all very cutting edge. But in other ways, it maintains, we were just talking about, you know, some of the great old traditions of radio, like accessibility and a kind of democratization of the production of information. You know, I mean, you know, that Wood and I did not have any background doing this before we started doing it. So... And now you've got, you know, a dozen podcasts as part of LitHub Radio. So did you see that sort of thing coming? Or are you surprised that this is how it has evolved? I don't think I'm particularly surprised, honestly. I mean, I do like to think about the democratization of these kinds of conversations through readily accessible tech. But I'm also wary of the dissemination of those those cultural products in the context of hyper-capitalist, massive corporate networks of... Uh, you know, Facebook and Amazon, and and it's it's one thing to record a podcast; it's another to to see it out in the world. So I think I think one must be wary about the the tech side of it in terms of of uh, rampant enthusiasm, and also the idea that you can monetize stuff. I mean, you know, Luminary I, got a hundred million dollars in venture capital funding. I mean, I don't think I've, that happened wait, for LitHub Radio. Have you seen the kind of things that venture capitalists will give money to? <laughs> And a hundred million? Why not us? Damn it! It's pocket change for them. Pocket change. But you know, but you know why? Because if you okay, so we're getting off topic, but it's a good topic. If you you know, we'd much rather at LitHub not be rich and do the kinds of things we want to do and grow an audience. And see, even I even hate the the kind of phraseology "grow an audience." We we want to reach people who are interested in books and ideas, and we want to be consistent and we want to do it slowly so we're not trying to create something that we can then sell we're just trying to create something that can ideally sustain itself but yeah so with with specifically with with literary podcasts and with podcasts in general i mean it really is they're just radio shows so it's not it's not a radical new format for the the discussion of ideas um it's just great that you know, you don't have to to work your way up through the the, the broadcast industry to to make it happen. I know Suki and uh, I would have had to be I like seventy years old by the time we got on NPR to have our own show. The idea of the blog, you know, which had its heyday perhaps at the turn of this century in the in the Bush years, which on one hand seemed revolutionary and like a whole new thing, but on the other was just another place where people could write and disseminate their ideas. And so there's no real revenue model attached to any of it. It's just it's just sort of being consistent and doing something you clearly love and also having a bit of talent and intelligence. Anyone who tells you that you're going to get into this to make a lot of money is probably not entirely... Um, <laughs> being honest? I don't know. Is this pessimistic? It sounds like I'm... No, I don't think so at all. In fact, you know, when we talked to these people, uh, these podcasters at, at, at AWP, they were all saying like, look, we did this because we enjoy it. And they talked about 
the amount of money they made, but it was mostly just enough to sort of keep the podcast going and make it functional. Nobody was getting rich off of that. And I don't think that's like the desire for most people who are in this. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's not. I mean, on the, on the other side, though, I... <laughs> Well, just so you know, our situation with LitHub is like way better than theirs. I don't know if I should even tell you that because then we'll get cut down somehow. But it's like our deal is great. Whatever we're, you're, you're, you're supporting us very well. We're happy with that. Well, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, I guess that speaks to my next point in response to that is as I don't also want to be one of these people who says, you know, in terms of culture and it's, for lack of a better ter- word, production, that you should never expect to make money on it. That's that's sort of, that's another kind of limiting of who gets to make culture, as if, as if well, you know, it's it, it'll only ever be a hobby, you have to love it. Like, that is true to some extent, but, but I would like to think we can figure out ways where people don't have to work two or three other jobs just so they can also read enough books to talk about them and create and add to the conversation around culture. That's I mean, uh, you know, now we get into the, the degrees to which, uh, you know, as a Canadian, I, I still I still am amazed at funding for the arts and, and subsidies for the arts and, and all of that. But yes, podcasting is not, it's not some kind of boom movement that's going to make a bunch of people rich, um, I think. And I think that's how we approach it, that we'd like to figure out ways to make sure people can do it comfortably, but it has to be about the conversations, the books, the ideas, all of that, first and foremost. So if we're resisting this hyper-capitalist narrative, um, maybe we should start calling it a podcast collective. So what does a podcast collective accomplish that an individual podcast can't? Aha! Uh-huh. Well, you see, you know, to be frank, it creates better possibility for potential revenue because, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and this is this is sort of where we're trying to figure out just that problem. So when you have a collective or a collective is, I prefer collective to network. When you have a collective, in theory, you have a group of shows that kind of reach a similar audience, but not entirely the same. And so you can bring listeners from one show to the next. And you can also, you know, in this model online, you're looking for advertisers. And you can say here, is a fairly dedicated audience that's focused in this particular direction. It's not too narrow, but it's narrow in the ways you like, advertiser. So here are the numbers. Here's how many people are listening to these shows. And in the way that radio, traditional conventional radio, is still one of the best advertising sectors in terms of its effectiveness, it's similar with podcasts because you can now listen to this stuff anywhere, like in your commute, while you're washing dishes, while you're folding laundry, while you're doing things that, you know, are otherwise tedious. And and I know some people lament the total absence of quiet space to think, but on the other hand, there's, you know, not so much thinking I can do on the subway, and I'd much rather be listening to people talk about books. So in that sense, you know, people who listen to podcasts are pretty valuable to advertisers. And yeah, so as a collective, there's a bit more a bit more power in that in terms of revenue. So we were just talking about how we came up with the idea for our show, the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. And after we did that and hashed through some questions ourselves, we got on the phone with you and pitched it. I don't know if you remember this phone call. But, I do. Uh, we were able to do that because we knew some people in common, and I'd written for the site before. I don't know if Sugi had or not, but um, I don't think I had. Yeah. Uh, but you didn't have to say yes, you know. No. I mean, well, <laughs> how did we convince you to put us on? Well, uh, it was pretty simple. I think 
the nut of the idea, fiction and nonfiction, and engaged with the very contemporary news cycle, is exactly what I'd always conceived of LitHub as a site to be. Is I was thinking of that when you described the redesign just a little while ago. I'm like, well, that sounds like our podcast. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it was actually pretty easy. And also, in terms of the quote-unquote literary podcast, I hadn't heard anything like that. I mean, there are a lot of great literary podcasts that are based primarily around the very specific personality of the interviews, interviewer. And while you guys have great personalities, the hook on your idea was so compelling that it just seemed like an obvious fit. So, yeah, it was an easy yes, frankly. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you're, of course, not only an editor, not only fielding pitches like that, you're also a fiction and nonfiction writer yourself, and you're working on a book project, and you published an essay a couple of days ago on long reads that's related to or maybe part of your project. So can you tell us about your book? Um, it is really great to hear that question. You know, as someone who deals with writers and books and interviews them all the time and thinks about what to ask them, it's lovely that you guys are going in this direction. I appreciate it very much. Um, so as to the book... I mean, I kind of alluded to it in, in even that intro. It's sort of a mashup. Uh, it began as a very specific object, History of the Axe, but uh, as I kind of Do got Do you frighten that, people like in a bar when you, they ask you what you're writing? You're like, oh, about axes. Well, I'm blessed. <laughs> I'm, I'm blessed with like resting menace face. So uh, <laughs> like no one talks to me on trains, planes. Like it's fine. I always look grumpy and mean. So, so yeah, I mean, no, people actually get really into it because it's sort of, you know, as, as part of the book's project is to kind of investigate this very contemporary cottage industry of repackaging like the, the so-called old frontier and its aesthetics and flannel and the lumberjack and masculinity and all these ridiculous myths that, that never really were but are kind of part of the nostalgia of the great American mythos. And, and for me, as I was getting into the specifics of the object history of the axe, I realized that it was a pretty useful symbol. I mean, it was a very, very useful tool in the expansion of the American West from right. the 17th century straight across. But now as a kind of symbol of all of that, um, it's pretty potent. I mean, you know, from axe throwing clubs to bespoke $350 hipster hand-painted felling axes. What? Oh, wait, you have no idea. <laughs> that is not happening in Kansas City. There is not a market. Or I'm going to go and I'm going to go make sure they're, I'm going to kick them right out of town if I find somebody selling an axe like that around here. You know, you know where the market is, wait, it's in New York and Los Angeles. I but, know. Um, but I mean, it's it. But there's there's a sort of paradox, though. It's, you know, the guy who's making these axes, they're actually the axes themselves are pretty good quality. They're just kind of like upsold. But they also some of the last small manufactured axes in America. So there's this this sort of like, and that's not a terrible thing. So while it's so easy to kind of be derisive of all of this stuff, there's part of the project of the book is is obviously to investigate that to some extent, indict it, but to also figure out ways that we can kind of untether the American traditions of what is essentially a kind of toxic masculinity expressed <laughs> through patriarchy and dominion and extractive capitalism, and, and, and maybe ask if it's possible to untether the good things about the wilderness and the good things about, about work that aren't necessarily about settler colonialism and genocide and all of, and, and gentrification, the gentrification of the wild even, so, you know, I don't just want to dismiss all of that and indict and convict. I want to figure out if we can strip these myths of their 
privileged codes, their kind of their blindness to race and class. You know, I want to see if the wilderness can be available to more people than it has been traditionally in America. And so, you know, there are actually some hopeful signs along along those lines in terms of uh, women in in like slow timber industry and and so yeah, that's the pro- that's the the broad project of the book. It sounds muddled right now because I'm not finished. So I, I'm. Kind it of sounds ready- fantastic. What are you oh. talking about? It sounds oh, yeah. really. I mean, I I love object histories. Yeah. Well, that's that's nice of you guys to say. See, I'm normally on the other side of this, so I got to work on my hard. We'll have it. you on when you uh, when it's done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank well, you very much. But read, can you read something? Read, read for, can you read from that essay? Sure, I'd love to. Um, and that actually might do a better job. I picked a section of this essay that leads from the analysis of Justin Timberlake lyrics, which right. maybe you weren't weren't expecting, um, because he had this big moment when he went back to the woods and he moved to a. Montana ranch that was part of a giant compound and um, and wrote an album based on his life in the country. So so I look at some of those those songs and then I talk about some of the uh, some of the objects he was selling at his pop up store um, and you can figure it out from there. One might find more insight into how the Big West has rubbed off on the big pop star Justin Timberlake with a quick look at the wilderness adjacent merchandise from his Man of the Woods collection, one item for each of the album's tracks. These include nods to practical Americana, like a wool Pendleton blanket, a tin of beard butter, which honestly, as a, someone who's had a beard for 20 years, I've never come close to using beard butter, but anyway, uh, and a trucker vest. Objects from the collection that correspond to the tracks above are a strong box, a flannel shirt, and a best-made company felling axe with custom-painted handle, with, we were just speaking about yes. that. These items, along with a cooler, a jean jacket, a bandana, and more, were all available for sale at a Lower East Side pop-up shop the week the album was released, a kind of company store for Timberlake, Inc. As brother to a trucker and an actual lumberjack, it is hard for me to fully understand totems of daily labor so dramatically upsold to influencers under the banner of authenticity. But as obvious a target Timberlake is for derision, he's more of a symptom than he is a cause. One more in a long line of mythologized white men, from Paul Bunyan to John Wayne, out there taming the wild as they tame themselves, but not too much. Spokesmodels in the endless ad campaign for America that began with Horace Greeley telling us to go west and live off the land. And that's the dream we're still being peddled, embodied by the upsold axe. That the axe in question is hanging on the wall of a pop-up store in downtown New York creates a particular kind of dissonance. Timberlake, Inc. is almost too perfect a microcosm for the stylized repackaging of the outdoors, for the yearning after a frontier that never really existed, and the rural working-class sensibilities that accompany it. This commodification of rural life and labor, its ruggedness, its whiteness, feels at best like a post-industrial Instagram fantasy, personal branding (laughs) available, personal branding, and I do this myself on Instagram, I'm such a hypocrite, personal (laughs) I like the woods and axes and stuff. Anyway, personal branding available a la carte or by kit. At worst, it perpetuates pernicious stereotypes, both racist and classist, about natural purity and rural misery, a paradox in service of the powerful. But life adjacent to wild spaces and the work that sustains it can be good, regardless of your politics. The braiding of masculinity and wilderness is as old as the American frontier, but it's worth considering how we might untangle the two, worth considering how we might live with the forest world and all it has to offer us without destroying it. And I'll stop there. Thank you so much. That's a great. I feel that I would be remiss if I did not mention that in fifth grade, I played Babe the Blue Ox in my, in my <laughs> class play. Oh, my Lord. 
Um, Jeez. It's true. It's That's true. pretty great. So how do you maintain your identity as a writer and you pers- your pursuit of this project while processing so much information from other writers? This isn't your first time doing it because you, you were at Elle Magazine and Brooklyn Magazine. What do you do to manage all that input and still create your own output? It's very difficult. Uh, it doesn't always work. So I think in that regard, um, I have to manage my own expectations so that on the one hand, I'm kicking my own ass enough to write, but I'm also not falling into a pit of despair if I don't manage to write for a couple of weeks. So, you know, I, I work well really early in the morning, so I have to do that. Um, I find a little bit of time on Sundays to make that happen. I mean, I think it's like any any writer, you know, who we all kind of discover after the perhaps, well, for me, the fantasy of the writer's life, the typewriter and the plenty of time to write. And, you know, I, I think a lot of us don't quite have that. We all have bills to pay and, and mouths to feed. So, I find time where I can. And so with nonfiction, it's actually been a kind of nice change to be able to listen to audiobooks, nonfiction audiobooks, to get a lot of background for this. And I do that on my commute, and I'm able to kind of ingest more and more information. But uh, the shorter answer is it's really hard, and sometimes I'm, I have a hard time maintaining my identity as a writer, and I get depressed. Do you but feel it's like okay. you, your writing has been – we talked a little bit about how podcasting has changed our writing uh, in the first half of the show. I was wondering how being an editor at LitHub, I'm wondering if that changed the way that you write in any way. Well, I mean I think you know, as any professional editor will probably tell you, you, you get quicker about structure <laughs> and you get quicker about flow and you get quicker about you know, the fat. A good editor is, is, a, is good at excising the unnecessary – and so I think those are the tools, you know, in writing to fit, writing fast and making sure every word counts. These sound a, kind, of, kind of sound like truisms, but, but that's, that's all part of, I think, being an editor and then being able to bring that to your own writing. One quick addendum to that is like, I know, I mean, you can't possibly now, given the size of the network, listen to every podcast every week. But like, what for you makes a good podcast episode? You don't. I mean, we kind of do what we do, actually. You know, we're, you guys have been very hands-off with us, but I'm sure that you think, like, well, this is good and this is what I prefer not to see, you know, when it comes to podcasts. For me, honestly, a good podcast, like a good radio show, comes down to the people you want to spend time eavesdropping on. Uh, and I don't mean the guests. I mean, to me, especially a podcast about books, is experiencing someone else thinking through an idea, which to me is also good writing, but uh, a podcast, it's obviously on the fly. And so you want someone who's going to be asking the questions that you want to be asked. There's nothing more frustrating and probably nothing more common than that sort of yelling at the radio when, when an interviewer doesn't ask the obvious question. And sort of <laughs> well, that's why I like you guys, because there's, there's, you know, there's a journalistic sensibility as well that's brought to bear on a lot of these things. So, Well, that's um, Zahir said, and I think we, we quoted him earlier, like, and if not, he said, you know, like, I, sometimes I'm the person who's supposed to ask the dumb question. That's my role on this podcast. Sugi gets to ask right. the smart questions. <laughs> well, and, and that's the journalist question. That's the, like, Columbo journalism. Like, just, <laughs> what? That's maybe an old reference. One more question. I got maybe it's dumb, <laughs> but that's off. That can be the question that sort of like untangles or you know topples something, and I think that's important. So, if you could go back and give yourself some advice five years ago when you were first beginning your work on LitHub, 
And if you could go back and give, this is another one of my two-part questions, and if you could go back and give us some advice about our early episodes, what would you say? To myself, I think I would say uh, make more time for yourself over the week to read for pleasure, because I think probably in the first three years, I came, well, I didn't come close to burning out. I mean, a job's a job, but, you know, part of this job requires... (laughs) I kind of, you need to remember what it's like to fall in love with a book, even if you're not always doing that. And I think uh, there was a point where I was a little bit too set on a wide breadth of shallow knowledge in terms of contemporary books, rather than a slightly deeper knowledge of a slightly narrower channel of reading. So if that makes sense, it's realizing that you can't personally cover and engage with and comment on every single earth-shattering new book that comes through your timeline, you need to kind of spend some time with actual texts and and finish them and think about them and read them slowly, um, or else you'll lose completely the point of what you're doing. And in terms of you guys, I would say probably slow down a bit, take it easy, relax, (laughs) would be... (laughs) You think we're like, we like talk too fast, or you think that we could like let things go longer? A little bit of both. A little bit of both. I think you're both very... I'm going to leave it there. And I'm, okay. gonna, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to leave that open to interpretation. It's a that? very Oracle-like editor statement that Sue and I will spend some time parsing when we get off of this call. Yeah. Being an editor is being a diplomat, mainly. So. <laughs> On you go. You guys are great. You're my favorites. Uh. <laughs> can, can anyone else hear this? All right, go on. <laughs> Next, next question, please. All right. If it's not a trade secret, and this will be our last one, or even if it is, what do you think the forecast is for LitHub and the literary scene, particularly as it pertains to podcasts and, and technology? I mean, the thing I think about in terms of this is like, well, YouTube, you know, YouTube is what my kids watch, not podcasts. Podcast is going to seem like old tech in a little bit, I think, if not right now, you know, I think podcasts are like for 30 year olds and, and up. Um, but anyway, so what do you think happens next? Well, I think the key distinction there is is between tech and uh, you know distribution platform um, because video is old tech and radio is old tech, um, right. and it just so happens YouTube created a pretty incredible, somewhat pernicious. You know, they're going through a lot of trouble right now, and I I sort of you know I have an eight year old son, and I don't imagine. You know, when he's 12, YouTube will be anything like it is now. So we actually, you bring up video. I think the pivot to video over the last two years has been summarily disastrous for all those who tried it and were egged on by Facebook to do it um, Mm. based on false premise of revenue. And so we're very, very, very skeptical of tech connected to anything to do with revenue because it seems there's there's a constant cycle of bubbles and paradigms far far more than is is realistic and and real so i'm digressing a bit away from your question not at all that's totally in the heart of my question that's great like like so essentially to answer your question we're not overly concerned with tech qua tech we're just concerned with broadening the scope of lit hub to include a broader range of books which to my mind is basically a broader range of topics and readers and a bigger audience. And and that, to me, goes along with becoming a bigger, broader cultural magazine. I mean, I want to 
pay more. I want to find more money to pay for more actual reporting in the context of slower stories and deeper stories and and cultural stories. And yeah, I want to keep growing slowly but realistically, so we don't you know we don't overshoot and waste some venture capitalist's hundred million dollar nut, which we probably never will have the opportunity oh, to no, do they're, so. They're all listening to this show. And I, but I'm fine with that. I don't really want that kind of money, frankly. Yeah. Um, not that kind of money. Um, so yeah, I, none of this is a trade secret, though. It's sort of slow and steady and, and make something that you can be proud of and that people you care about can be proud of. And uh, hopefully it can be sustainable and good. And, and so that's our trade secret. And you guys are a huge part of that. So thank you. Well, thanks for thanks for having us as part of Lithub. I think we were we were really excited to have our show be part of a site that we admired so much. And uh, on that note, maybe we should quit while we're ahead because for the first time ever, we have to edit the podcast and turn it into our guest. So Johnny, so great to have you with us. Thanks for making the time. Thank you, guys. It's been wonderful. And I'm going to rewrite all of my dumb answers. <laughs> thanks, so, Johnny. So, and thanks so, for yeah. everything. Look, man, it really, seriously... The last year and a half of doing this podcast, it worked out so much better than I even imagined. And you and all the people at LitHub have been a huge part of that. And we're very thankful. Well, thank you, guys. And I hope you have a good weekend. You too. All right, guys. See you soon. Bye. And that's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. Our transcriptionist is Damian Johansson. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Facebook at FNF Pod, where we post links to our show notes, which will include some of the readings and articles we talked about today. Happy beach reading and podcast listening, the beginning of summer. <laughs> <laughs>